We'll be reading from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5, verses 8 through 19. And said to them, We as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of your nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise so that he may be shaken out and emptied and all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took them from them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on, his, on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the servants was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that in your love you seek to guide us. In your love you seek to correct us. In your love, Lord, you seek to give us new life and help us to thrive in you. So, Lord God, as we learn uh, today from Nehemiah and from the Word, Lord, we ask that you might show us, Lord, the ways that we need to grow in you, and that you might show us also what we have in you, the incredible, amazing, bountiful grace that is given so freely, your agape love, Lord, self-sacrificial giving, Lord, that always is coming towards us. Help us to know those things so we can continue to follow you, even when we may be wrong. Thank you, God. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 
couple weeks ago, I was on the 7 train drive, uh, coming to church. When I heard someone on the other side of the train, it was a very crowded morning, and I heard someone on the other side of the train say, I'm not wrong, you're wrong. And that's kind of the, like the church-friendly translation of what was said uh, that morning. A couple words that I can't say in church happened there as well. And I didn't see who said it because the train was crowded. It was down the other side of the train. Uh, and, but it made me curious, like, what's going on here? You know, I didn't know if it was on the phone or in person. I didn't hear someone respond. And it didn't happen again. I didn't hear any other words for a few more minutes. So I thought, okay, just a random occurrence. But then I heard uh, the person say as well, I didn't do that. You did that. And again, quiet. And by that time, I was really curious, like, what is going on here? What is happening? What did, what did she do or not do? And what did he do or not do? What, what's going on here? And I never got a chance to find out because after, you know, the subway, next subway stop, it didn't happen again. So I don't know if the person maybe left or finished their phone call or whatever. But that kind of just that, that little interaction uh, stuck with me after. And it made me think of how hard it is at times to admit we're wrong. How hard it is to admit that we're really, really wrong. Now, I don't know this person's context. I don't know if this person was right or wrong or what happened. But usually there's a rule when it comes to conflict and confrontations that both participants in a conflict are both right and they are both wrong. So even if a person is fully right and their perspective is right, they could also be wrong in the way they bring out that. Like this person in the way that she was speaking to the other person, she was probably not right in the way she was uh, treating the other person, even though she may have been right in her, in her, uh, you know, in her thought or what she did. And so it's hard for us then, I think for all of us at various times, to admit we're wrong. To admit that we are the wrong one and to take responsibility for our wrongness. I was reading this week a book uh, where the writer was talking about how different personalities deal with being wrong. And she described in the book that, you know, some personalities will deal with being wrong by blaming. You know, that right away if you're wrong, say, no, I'm not wrong, you're wrong. And kind of put the fists up and kind of begin to fight. That's how some personalities deal with being wrong. While others may deal with being wrong by kind of reframing, by going, oh, it's actually not really wrong. It's maybe kind of wrong, but actually, you know, it's a good learning experience for all of us, and, you know, these things happen, and it's not so bad, and and after a while, the wrong isn't really wrong at all. It's just kind of, you know, just a learning experience. And others deal with wrong, she said, by avoiding being wrong. (laughs) as much as possible, because being wrong has this sense of not just your actions are wrong, but you are wrong. It, it carries this deep weight of, of shame and, and guilt upon a person that can, can destroy them if they, they allow it to kind of continue. And so she said that these are all ways that we respond to wrongness, and, and I don't know if you see yourselves in any of these. I know I do, for sure. But there are other ways, I'm sure, that you could deal with when you feel like you're wrong or someone accuses you of being wrong. And in this passage, we see that there are spiritual consequences in the ways that we deal with being wrong. That it's not just about, like, 
personal consequences or individual consequences, but there are spiritual consequences as well. Concerning, and they, they concern your relationship with God. And they also concern your relationship with those who God loves. They, they affect that. And we see this in this passage. Nehemiah was speaking to people who were wrong. Last week we studied this passage as well. And we learned about how there was a famine in Jerusalem. And all the people who had come uh, from far and wide kind of on faith. is going, we're going to build this wall. God has given us a mission. This is what we're doing. They were six months into it and they were depleted. They didn't have any money, no food. They, was, they were starving, basically. And the only people that had money were the rich. They were the powerful nobles of Jerusalem. They were the rich merchants. And they were giving their food away, but they were giving it with interest. With, they were saying, yeah, this, you know, this 50 cents um, you know, orange is now $18. And if you want to buy it, then you might have to take out a loan on your house. And then maybe you'll just need to sell your house to me, or you'll need to sell yourself to slavery to me so that you can feed your family. And Nehemiah here calls this out. He says, wait, 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 what's going on? But the most, the biggest problem with what they were doing is that in the midst of what they're doing, they thought they were right. Even though they were wrong, they thought they were right. Until Nehemiah called them out, they could do these unjust actions and then an hour later, go to the temple and, or go and worship God with a clear conscience. They were able to hold these two things, being wrong, really wrong and unjust by any measure of God's word like we talked about last week, but at the same time, being justified that they were right. So they were blind. They were, they were blind to the needs of others, and they were also blind to God. And that's a dangerous place to be because you can think you're fully righteous, you're fully good with God, but be doing things that God abhors. And that's what Nehemiah brings out in this passage. These spiritual consequences for kind of doing wrong but justifying your rightness or even believing your rightness at the same time. And so he calls them to repentance. And we see in this passage, as we continue to study it, that the people respond in an amazing way because they do repent. They repent right away. Nehemiah calls them out, and they say, we're wrong. We're going to stop what we're doing. We'll change, we'll change our actions. And so for us, as we look at this passage, this idea of repentance is also kind of the rhythm of the life of someone who believes in God. That if we believe in God, we see this throughout the Bible. I mean, Nehemiah is uh, an example of repentance. We see it all throughout the book of Nehemiah. That Nehemiah, for Nehemiah, repentance was what relationship with God is. It's how you have a relationship with God is you repent. You come to God in your blindness and you ask for sight. You come to God in your darkness and you ask to be called into the light. That's the rhythm of life with God. And it's not a shameful thing. Often repentance, I think, can be seen as something like, oh, we only do it when we have to, when we've been called out in a way that we can't escape from it. But really here and throughout the scriptures, repentance is seen as this beautiful, joy-filled action, a coming home to God, a coming back to God's purposes and his love for us. And we see that is the rhythm of the Christian's life as well. 
So today we're going to look at what it means for us to repent, especially about the ways we treat each other. Because remember, this passage is about injustice. It's about people doing unjust things to each other and needing to be woken up from the blindness of their doing that. So we're going to talk today about what it means for us to repent, especially about the ways we treat each other, both the, way, the sins of commission, the ways we hurt each other, and also the sins of omission, the ways that we do not love each other the way we should. So we're going to look at the blindness, both the, the blindness of eyes, of not seeing the needs of others, and the blindness of faith, of not seeing God's call or justifying ourselves by God that holds us back for loving others, and then how we can repent and be drawn towards, again, God's will and God's way. So we're going to look firstly at what it means to have blind eyes. And we see this in verse 9 through 11 in Nehemiah. In verse 9 through 11, Nehemiah says, and we studied this first part last week, What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields and vineyards and olive groves and houses. And also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. So here we see that Nehemiah is saying, hey, wait, guys, let's stop this. Stop it right now. But notice who he's talking to. He's not just saying, hey, you guys, you're terrible. All you people, such bad guys and gals and everybody else. He's saying, we. He is telling them, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. So it's interesting here what's happening. Because when Nehemiah was confronted with wrongdoing in the community, he doesn't immediately hand it to somebody else and say, hey, yeah, you're wrong. You guys, you're wrong. He doesn't blame and get defensive like we talked before. But he takes responsibility for his blindness. We see that Nehemiah is, has this impeccable character through the book of Nehemiah. He is someone who seeks to follow God even when it's unpopular. And here he saw that he was blind, so he had himself to take responsibility for it before he even called other people out to take responsibility for it as well. And so when we think about our blindness, we might even go, well, I'm not blind, of course. I'm not blind to other people. But this is where the kind of um, the tricky issue of spiritual blindness comes up, is we can be blind even when we think we're not blind. We can think we're doing right even when we're doing wrong. And that's what we see happening in this passage. Nehemiah brings up to the people that we were blind. He was only woken up when his people started telling him how much they're suffering. And he tells them their sufferings as well so they can be woken up. And also we need to be woken up regularly when we can be blind towards the needs of others. We see this idea of blindness towards others kind of goes throughout the scripture. We see it in 1 John where he says, Anyone who hates his brother and sister is in darkness and walks around in darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. And this passage, if you're just reading it on your own, you could say, well, I don't hate anyone, so I'm not blind. I'm good. Doesn't apply to me. 
But the word hate in this passage actually means simply to love less. That's what it means in Greek. To love someone less. So when you are, you know, uh, guilty of loving someone less, you're, when it happens to brothers and sisters, that just means that I look at some people and go, yeah, they're less worthy of my attention. They're less worthy of love. They're less worthy of care. That they're less worthy of my time. When I love them less, I look at them and just go, yeah, no, not me. Easy to cut them off, easy to let them go. And we do that all the time. And so this, word, this very much, this passage applies to the spiritual darkness that we can experience when we love less. We see what the word darkness means here. A moral and a spiritual obscurity. So it has this idea that like, when you start loving people less, you're starting to, you begin to not know what's right and wrong anymore. You start getting lost and going, I don't, I don't know what's right. Right has become wrong. Wrong has become right. I don't understand it. And it all comes and starts with when we love other people less. So isn't that interesting how this darkness can overcome us when we begin to love others less because ultimately we begin to make excuses about others and about ourselves. It's kind of like when we are in darkness, it's kind of like like living in a bubble, like living in a balloon where we're kind of inside it and we can't see what's going on outside. And in the, in the passage in Nehemiah, we see that goodness and the goodness and rightness of God is like a pin. I know if you, didn't, if you were sleeping, you're awake now, so that's good. But the goodness of God is like that kind of bursting of the bubble. And that's what happened to Nehemiah. The goodness of God broke the bubble of his blindness and his people's blindness. Nehemiah says to them, do what is right. And the word right in, the, in Hebrew means good. Do what is good. And the word good in Hebrew means the highest good or the best good. It means God's goodness. And so what Nehemiah is saying to them is that you are not doing what's good in the eyes of God. You're doing what's good in the eyes of yourself, but not in the eyes of God. And they were called and challenged to change because of it. And we have something that Nehemiah doesn't have. Nehemiah does not have access to what we have because we have Jesus Christ. We have God fully revealed. If we want to know what is good, if we want to know what God's character is, what God is about, we know it much better than Nehemiah did. Nehemiah heard from the prophets. He heard from the the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other books describing the Ten Commandments. But he didn't see God revealed, Jesus Christ, and we see God in person, Jesus Christ. Everything we need to know about God is revealed in Jesus. So for us, if we want to know what's good, we need to know Jesus. We need to understand Jesus to understand what Jesus cares about. What does Jesus think is good? And then we're challenged then to be woken up from our blindness by gazing at Jesus. Jesus is not going to give us every answer to every problem. And that's, I think, something that bothers us at times. Because we have an ethical issue at times. And we're like, oh, look up the Bible. Oh, what's it going to say? Is it going to be an answer? And we're like, ah, 
it doesn't give me an exact answer to this problem. What am I supposed to do, God? And we can just get angry at God, like, God, you're not telling me. But God has told us. He's given us Jesus, and he's also given you a mind, and he's given you the Holy Spirit within you. So he's given you everything you need to make that decision, though it might be hard and it might take time. But as we look to Jesus, the one thing that happens, even though the answer is not suddenly clear, the one thing that happens is that your darkness begins to fade. When we begin to look at Jesus, the blindness begins to fade because God's goodness is what bursts that bubble of our darkness. So we're simply called in our prayer life just to, to give God our darkness, to say, God, am I blind? Am I blind to someone today? Am I blind to something today? Am I blind to someone's need in the world? Am I blind to a way that I'm treating someone else? Lord, would you reveal, reveal that to me? Would you break the darkness? Would you pop that bubble of my blindness and give me sight? And as we do that, we're also called to uh, peer into the blindness of our faith as well. That we can have a faith that justifies our actions, that basically uh, a faith that manipulates God's will to do our will. And that's what we see going on with the, uh, the nobles as well. Nehemiah, in the passage we studied last week, verse 8, he says, don't you fear God? Fearing God means that you respect God's will and you also respect God's power. And they were guilty of, of starting to make their own God. They were manipulating God to, get, to do their own will. Like I said before, they could go to, to worship God and then go do these corrupt, unjust things and feel like they were just fine, that there was no problem at all. And this is also a troubling aspect of sin for us, that we can also be spiritually blind we can, we can manipulate God to do our will. Rather than doing God's will, we can, we can think that God is doing our will and not even kind of realize it. And that leads then to justifying hatred or justifying judgment. It leads to self-righteousness, but it also comes out in less obvious ways. When we justify our own thoughts and our actions rather than seeking to be challenged by God. One example of this happened to me many years ago when I was working with college students. And a college student who actually I still have a relationship with today, he's a great guy, and back then he was struggling with a relationship. And so he came to me and he said, kind of in a self-defensive way, he get, said, hey, I am sleeping with my girlfriend, but I think it's wrong maybe, but we love each other, and we know Jesus forgives us, and we believe in God's grace. And he kind of did it as like a, so there. And I didn't ask him about that, so that kind of came out of his own guilt that he even told me. And I also wanted to give him grace. I mean, God does give him grace in Jesus Christ. He's right in many things. But eventually, I also kind of wanted to help him see where he might be wrong as well. And I don't know if you caught where he's wrong. If you could see in that, in that description, I just said where he might be wrong. But this is it, kind of where he's wrong. I know it's not right, but. Whenever we do that in our life, 
oh, I know this is not the best thing, but, you know, it's what I got to do right now, or it's okay, it's all right, God will forgive me, whatever. We begin to enter this kind of spiritual darkness, this blind faith, because we are justifying our actions by God. We are saying that God is okay with what we're doing. And the thing is, we are loved and we are forgiven by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in his love gives us bountiful, amazing, overwhelming, astonishing grace. It's just an amazing thing. But we see that God does not always agree with our actions. Nor is God always for our actions. There are many, many examples in the scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament, where something a faithful person is doing, God works against them. Because their actions are against his will. And so even though God loves us, he's not always working on our side in everything we do. He's not always for us in all our actions because he loves us too much. He loves us so much that he wants us to be doing his will. And so we can kind of manipulate God and have this blindness to our faith when we begin to think that God is conforming to our will rather than us conforming to his will. And so when we begin to kind of see this blindness in our life, and I've seen it, I mean, just the other day I was talking to a friend about something totally off the subject, and Something that this person said, I don't know if you've ever had that, where like a friend says something and you're like, it just kind of bursts your bubble, you know, that blindness in some way. She said something and all of a sudden I realized that I had been really judgmental towards this other person. That I had not prayed for them, I had not cared for them, that I was just angry at them and I, I was thinking the worst of them. And at that moment I realized, wow, I was blind, <laughs> fully blind. Blind to them and blind to God to think that, you know, God didn't care about what I was doing. And it brought me back to to pray. Brought me back to to change. And so in Nehemiah, we see three aspects that that, uh, their repentance brought them to. That really is a, a guide for us as well. That when we get to that point when we see God's blindness, where we see our blindness about others and God... We can learn from Nehemiah and his people about how they responded to that. And we see, firstly, that they responded by reflecting. Now, repentance is when the the lights are turned on in our darkness. So it's this moment of sunrise. I encourage you to see repentance like that. Not a moment of darkness and shame where like, oh, God, I did such bad things. But this moment of, of light, of sunrise, of going, wow, I see it now. God, thank you. Thank you for your help. Thank you for your, your guidance. Thank you for turning on the light and bringing me out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And so we see in that moment that what happened when they were called on their, uh, the people of Israel were called on their sin and blindness. The first thing they did is reflecting. We see in the passage in verse 8 that when, when Nehemiah accused them and gave them all the accusations, they did not blame They did not uh, reframe. They did not get defensive. They did not avoid. It said that they kept quiet because they had nothing to say. Isn't that interesting? They just kept quiet. They had nothing to say. Now, I think for some of us, if we think like someone's accusing us or we feel bad about something, that, you know, it, it might feel like weird to just do nothing. 
You know, especially if we respond by defensiveness, we want to get our, our fists up and be like, no, 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 you're wrong, not me, you, not me. And so it's hard just to not say anything, to just say nothing, just to stop and reflect. But that's our challenge when we are accused or we feel bad or something is, we feel there might be something wrong, is just to reflect. Just to ask God, God, am I blind? Is there some blindness going on? Just to ask God, God, where's my responsibility? Remember, like I said in the beginning, in every conflict, both people are wrong and both people are right. So where am I wrong? Where do I need to take responsibility? If we do that before we say a word, the first thing you say in a conflict is going to be very different. Because usually we just react. We don't think we react. But if we take that moment just to stop and think, where's my responsibility? Where do I need to to admit and repent, then the first thing we say is going to be very different. And so we're called just firstly to reflect, to just stop and be quiet. And then actually after that, we see that the people of Israel took responsibility. They said, after Nehemiah accuses them, we will give it back and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And even after that, they made this oath that if they went back on their promise that they would let God just take everything from them and destroy their lives. This big, giant promise, and they made it because they turned, took responsibility for their actions. It's a remarkable statement because that just doesn't happen that much. I don't know if it's happened to you much where you say, you say to somebody, hey, what you did hurt me, and they say, yes, I take responsibility. I will not do it again. That just happens so rarely, and we do it so rarely. But it's something that we can practice. Practice, what do I have to take responsibility for in this situation? And then do it. A couple weeks ago, this, uh, this idea came to me kind of just out of the blue. When a friend uh, that I hadn't heard from in 25 years, Facebook messaged me and said they wanted to talk to me on the phone. And I thought, I haven't talked to this person in 25 years. Why do they want to talk to me on the phone, of all things? Not just say, hi, thinking about you. And I, so I asked them, why, why do you want to talk to me? I said it in a nicer way, like, oh, what might you want to talk about? And he said, I wanted to take responsibility uh, for some personal uh, kind of personal faults that I committed against you, basically is what he said. And I thought, what personal kind of uh, failures or faults did he commit against me? And so we talked about a week later, and he, and he basically just confessed that in college he was a jerk. And I don't remember him being a jerk like he says he is, but I do remember him being selfish and, and flaky and not following up on things. We lived on the, in this uh, ministry house together for a year, and we, we all had responsibilities, and I was constantly just kind of filling in for him because he was, had a girlfriend, and he was off doing his own thing, and he wasn't fulfilling his responsibilities. And I remember at the time, it frustrated me, but after I got out of that house, I didn't think about it again. Yet for him, he's thought about it over the years, and he felt like, I just need to confess, and I need to ask forgiveness. And it was pretty amazing to me that he did that. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have never experienced that before where someone 25 years later comes to me just because they want to ask forgiveness. And I asked him why he was doing that, and he said that he was in a program called Al-Anon, which is a 12-step program. 
And in one of the 12 steps, it says to go back and to uh, take responsibility for the ways you hurt other people. And so my friend basically took that seriously. (laughs) And he went back and he made a list. And he went through that list just to basically ask forgiveness of the people he's wronged. And I'm not saying that all of us need to go do that. Like, I, I don't want you to, well, if you want to, you can do that. But that's not necessarily what we need to do, but it, it is involved in that, taking responsibility for our actions. If we hurt someone, to take responsibility and say, I hurt you. And that can be a, a hard thing to do because you don't know how they're going to respond. They may not respond the way you want them to. They may be frustrated at you or whatever, but just simply to take responsibility is part of repentance. And that may take a while, but I encourage you, stop and ponder. And then think through, how do I need to take responsibility? And lastly, then, we see that Nehemiah simply turned around and walked the other way. Said in the end that that he would not take any of the, the money that the people are supposed to give him as the governor to feed himself and his people. And that seems like a pretty kind of, you know, odd thing because he's the governor. It's just like today. We pay taxes to support our, our officials, things like that. But he wouldn't take that because he, he could see their need. He chose not to take what was owed him because he was awake to the ways that other people were hurting. And that's just our challenge as well. When, we are, when we've pondered, when we've taken responsibility just to wake up and go, how am I hurting others? How can I help others? What are the needs and how can I respond? And then simply to respond. As we close, I just encourage you that repentance is a grace-filled action. It is coming home to God's grace. It is like the prodigal son returning home on the road and the, the father embracing you. So I encourage you this week to practice repentance. Just simply to look and how am I blind? And then ask God to wake you up, to pop that bubble. And then simply to ponder and to take responsibility and to turn around and go where he calls you. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you that you are a good God who loves us so much that you call us to repent. That repentance is not a bad thing, it's not a dark thing, it's not a shameful thing, but it's a beautiful thing that calls us out of darkness and into your wonderful light. It's a grace-filled action of coming home to you. Help us to realize that, Lord God. Help us not to be afraid of repentance or ashamed of repentance, but help us to look forward to those moments where you call us to repent. Help us look forward to those moments where we realize we're blind and we're called to wake up because those are moments of redemption. Those are moments of grace where we see just how much you love us and we can come back to your loving arms. Lord God, I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that we might be called to greater repentance so we might understand in a greater way your grace and love. Thank you, Lord God. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship him. Come now, fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace.
So friends, I encourage you to go in the grace of our God and Jesus Christ. In this world, we will never be rid of sin. And so repentance is not a way to become perfect, but it's a way to know God's grace. It's a way to know God's light and truth. So I encourage you to go in repentance in the name of the Father who made you, in the name of the Son who loves you, in the name of the Holy Spirit that is with you, now and forevermore. Amen.